How does a great war and a massive fire influence Swedenborg's spiritual mission? And how is the presence of deceased loved ones conveyed through hawks and dreams? Here we are inside Off the Left Eye. Stick around for my exclusive interviews with Curtis Childs, director of Off the Left Eye, and none other than Dr. Jonathan Rose, series editor for the New Century Edition translation of the theological works of Emanuel Swedenborg. And we'll hear from Emanuel Swedenborg himself, at least the record he left of where he was and what he was up to this week in history. Hey, Curtis, welcome. Hey, Chelsea, thanks for having me back. Yeah, so this week... Wait, I'm sorry, I, I yeah. don't know, like, like, because am I a guest? Should I be like, thanks for having me? Or like, I'm a regular <laughs> part of... But, but I just don't know exactly... Let's we'll smooth this out as we go forward in episodes. But for now, I'll just say like, thanks so much. I know you had a lot of people to choose from. Thanks for having me back. <laughs> yes, and I I don't know what the right rules of courtesy on podcasts are anyway. So we'll we'll yeah. just I'm just going to pretend. Yeah, you're a guest to my home. Here we are inside off the left eye. It's great. Um, it's great to be here. Yes. Okay. So um, so this week was the beginning of this launch of this new content that we have, and this week's topic, this past week's topic was. Um, all around the subject of marriage in heaven. And Monday night's show was, will you be married in heaven? Yes. And (laughs) You don't even have to watch it. (laughs) Yeah, there you go. That's the short form, the cliff notes. Um, And and if you haven't watched it and you do want to watch it, if that isn't enough for you, you can watch it on our YouTube channel, Off the Left Eye, or you can listen to it as a podcast if audio is your thing, if you're here listening to Inside Off the Left Eye, because we put the audio of the Swedenborg and Life shows of all of our YouTube shows on their very own podcast channel called Swedenborg and Life. So you can listen Life. to the audio there. And for both of those channels, go ahead and give us a rating. Write one Please. up. That's real good for us. And in case anyone was wondering, why did you guys make such a snarky title, Will You Be Married in Heaven? Yes. This is part of us <laughs> trying to use the science of search engine optimization to reach people. So a lot of this stuff about afterlife marriage is ju- is saying no, 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 no. So on that, if you're trying to yes. stand out in the page of results... We've got to give you something that differentiates us. And it's it's not clickbait because honestly, that is what differentiates Swedenborg's view in a lot of cases. Yeah, yeah, I know. Like I would challenge people to go find, you know, something, anybody out there who's saying yes to that question. And I think we're we're the only, the sole voice out there right now with, uh, you know, of course people hope for it, but, but with so much detail that you can get from Swedenborg about what that yes entails. And, and right. that's some of what we're going to get to sort of explore right now in this segment. So so part of our weekly, you know, uh, menu for people is that we put out a reflection question on um, Thursdays and you can find them on our community tab at the Off the Left Eye YouTube channel. Or if you follow us on social media, you know, Facebook, Instagram or Twitter, um, you can also get these reflection questions because we want to hear from you too. But you get to hear from us now on this Look <laughs> reflection question. Look how the tables have turned. <laughs> Here we are. So this is the question of this week. So love is what creates spiritual union and closeness in the afterlife. That's a principle in Swedenborg. And, and so we're exploring how marriage exists in heaven. But really that principle just applies to all relationships. You know, anybody who you love. And so whether... Like, even if you have loved ones who are on the other side of the veil, you know, who are already in the spiritual world, you are still connected because of the love that you share. And 
And so the reflection question is, have you ever sensed the presence of a deceased loved one with you? And and really interestingly is like what communicated their presence to you? You know, that's an interesting contemplation. So, uh, yeah. Curtis, do you have do you have a, any initial thoughts on that or? I don't know who Man, wants to go first. We're both going to respond. I, I want to go first. That doesn't mean I have initial thoughts on it. All right. But, the floor um, is yours. This invisible podcast floor. Yeah. Yeah. And in your home. Um, yeah. This, I, I feel like nice and dense about any kind of afterlife communication mm-hmm. stuff. Like I feel like little spiritual experiences of all kinds are very widespread, but they don't really spread all the way to me. So I, the closest thing I would have that that sticks out to me is so when I was young, when I was six, uh, my older sister was killed in a car accident um, mm-hmm. that that our family was in, and mm-hmm. I just remember, I don't know how long it was, not that long after I had some dream, to where she was in it, and we were playing with Lego, and Sweet. what was amazing is that. I don't know if you if you've played with much Lego, but there's like these little pants that are the you know bottom half of a Lego person. But there's also <laughs> yeah. those are like a standard thing, but there's also a bit of a rarer piece that is the hair uh, that yes. can go on top of a Lego head. And I think it was her that she could take one of those Lego hairs and like just press it with her thumbs and turn it into Lego pants. And I was <gasps> like, wow, you can do that. Um, and so, so there was that, but there, I, I remember, I don't even remember this in the dream, but I remember saying to somebody that we hugged in that dream and I, it was stood out to me that I was like, I, I could really feel it. It was like, it was real. So, so to me, for some reason that, you know, I've had a lot of dreams, but that one I still can remember or, or remember that I remember. I don't know if it's an actual memory now, right, but, right, right. Uh, but that to me feels like the, the, the most um, presence I've felt. Yeah. Oh, that is so awesome. And I love, I mean, that is just so precious. And, <laughs> and I love that it's, it's in the language of who you were at that time too, you know, like it's communicating that she's th- this specialness of Lego and this ability to turn the hair into the pants or whatever like that. Yeah. It's just so perfect. Um, and, uh, and I do think that that's like, that's what we hear from people is that Dreams are this strong means of communication between loved ones in the afterlife and us here. I just think like there's no question in my mind that that is such um, that's like part of the design, I think. And we could be sort of more um, tuned into that um, and acknowledging of that aspect of of our dreams. Um, Yeah. Doesn't Swedenborg talk about earliest people, you know, prior to written revelation, it would generally be visions and dreams. Which is where you'd sort of be taught and led spiritually, yeah. and and I, to me it seems like look, you, you have dreams all the time, and they're always really f- bizarre and vivid and fantastical. But there are certain ones that that I can think back on that you just get this feeling of there was something different about that, and and for yes. you to be able to pick those ones out of this lineup of all these amazing landscapes you go to, I think pay attention to that because it could well be that that we have this just sort of innate sense of you know the difference between looking at a in virtual reality goggles and taking them off and like, oh yeah, this is real. So maybe there yeah. is like a sort of an upgraded dream experience and, and you just sense it. For me, um, yeah, I also have a, my mom died when I was 10 and um, and I had dreams of her that, uh, so her presence was communicated to me that way. But what came to my mind when with this question was actually that it's sort of interesting that now more and more like uh, her, it, it's, 
wakeful physical experiences that sometimes just send this message to my brain that like, that's mom, you know, so I'm not like in interacting with her, you know, visually, like I'm not seeing her. I'm not, uh, well, sometimes I sort of hear the sound of her voice in my head, but like, um, oh, I just had this ridiculous experience this weekend where, um, I was driving in the car and I was going very slowly and suddenly this hawk took off out of nowhere, right in the corner of my peripheral vision. And I slammed on the brakes and I, yeah. you know, it would be so devastating to me to hit a hawk. And I've never had a hawk just like come right in front of the car like that. And like, um, what kind of person hits a hawk? <laughs> a horrible, horrible person. They fly. <laughs> they only buy the ground for a teeny little bit. And you pick yes. them up. Yeah. So I, and, I see the stakes here. Exactly. And this hawk was taking flight. Its wings were out. And I think because its wings were out, it saved it because we did collide. Like I bumped into this <laughs> hawk. It's not funny. <laughs> it's not funny. And I screamed. And, um, but I didn't knock the hawk out of the air. It, we, I felt impact and then it f- kept flying. It flew off. And it's so weird to say, but I just, in that moment, it was exactly what I needed. And it's like, it's these sort of funny, humorous moments sometimes where it's like my mom or the spiritual world is just like, no, we are here. We're like, you need, you need to pay attention. Um, and if this is what it takes, this is what's going to happen. (laughs) It's like, what can we we get Chelsea to make her feel good today? Uh, what about we send like a rainbow? Bright shiny clouds that look like a person. Now, how about, how about she hits a hawk? But yeah, well, so you look, know how you know yeah. when somebody like hip checks you, like when you're not expecting it, like somebody just like <laughs> bumps their hip into you. That's what I think my mom did in this moment. <laughs> well, and look at it. I mean, you you've probably seen a lot of rainbows, but this thing for some reason registered to you as this was yes. It. This was a I could not ignore it. And oh, I'm sure and that I'm... yeah, there's some subliminal connection there that that helps you label it like that and i should just say for people that like yeah hawks have been just like a symbol for me of my mom forever and so like when she first passed away there were Uh these hawks circling over our house and you know me and my sisters all just we can't help it when a hawk shows up it's like oh what is mom like there's mom kind of a thing and that's so interesting i'm sure other people have that experience and i just i'm i'm done with sort of questioning it i'm just like all right that's what it is so interesting cool well I, i loved getting to hear about that yeah and so, well, that's your little, that's our little extra dose for this week's topic. And I'll just give people a little preview. So next week, um, this topic that you're going to get to uh, watch the Swedenborgian Life show coming on Monday night is um, on continuing the theme of marriage, but it's going to be about how you find your soulmate and how we will find our soulmate after death, even if not in this world. And so thanks, Curtis, for being here. And um We'll uh, we'll connect back with you at the end of the show to talk about where was Swedenborg and what was he up to this week in history. But first, I'm going to check in with Jonathan Rose about news from the NCE. Great. Hey, Jonathan. Thanks so much for being here. Hey, Chelsea. Nice to be with you. Yeah. And so here we are checking in with you, sort of the what news of the NCE Well, we've got huge news right at the moment, which is our latest volume is just in the process of being finalized. Uh, The pages are printed. It's being bound. uh, Everything's coming together. It's the Shorter Works of 1763. Ooh, exciting. And 
NCEs come in basically two different flavors, a lot of different formats, but we have portable volumes that are just uh, translation only, and mm -hmm. then we have uh, deluxe volumes that include the notes, indexes, introductions, all the bells and whistles. Yeah, and oh, it's I love the, the deluxe volumes. Coming out now, it's a new deluxe volume, a which we're deluxe. very excited about. Yay, and they have those beautiful hardback purple covers, right? And That's it. Um, Oh, I just love those. So great. Oh, I can't wait to see it. I'm very excited. So the 1763s, and if I'm not mistaken, we had a pretty great uh, run of um, shows or these little uh, trailers that we made about the 1758s. Was that the year that, like, the last volume that came out was the 1758s? Yes, that's right. Both for the NCE and for Swedenborg, which is interesting. When I was younger... I always saw these uh, green volumes uh, that the Swedenborg Foundation put out in the past, uh, sort of a monolithic block of 30 volumes on the shelf. And mm -hmm. I just figured Swedenborg just kind of plugged away at it and all the volumes are about the same size. And so I thought the works that he was writing were probably about the same size. And I had no idea that things changed so much from beginning to end of what he did. Hmm. And I was very surprised to find out that between 1758 and 1763, he took a five-year break from publishing. For some reason, I didn't have a timeline in my head when I started, but when you start to figure out when these different works are, it gets really interesting because Swedenborg's first theological work was Arcana Celestia, which we translate Secrets of Heaven. Mm -hmm. And that was massive. It's thousands and thousands of pages. It's eight huge quarto volumes the way it originally came out. Hmm. And then, and he finished that in 1756. And then in 1758, he did five titles that were the size of just one of the volumes of Secrets of Heaven. So in other words, an eighth <sighs> of Secrets of Heaven was the size of five of these. He really changed it up. Huh and changed his whole approach. And they are like a, they've been referred to as a topical index to Secrets of Heaven. They seem oh, to be yeah. almost like marketing to send you back into Secrets of Heaven. Hey, check this out, check that out if you wanna see this topic, because um, they're full of references back. And then you have this five-year gap with no publishing, and that was unlike him to go hmm. that long. And he was 70 years old at the beginning of the gap, <laughs> and 75 at the end, you know, it's like an odd time when you've got this mission to change the world to kind of take a five-year, you know, break or something. Seems odd. I had the pleasure and privilege of writing an introduction to this volume. The 1763s. Uh, uh -huh. Yeah, we actually tried to get other people to introduce it, and nobody was all that interested. And so <laughs> we finally thought, okay, we'll do it ourselves. Well, it was just fascinating to me what I learned in the course of doing this. Hmm. And one of the things that I, I should have been a student of history uh, to a greater degree or something, but <laughs> I didn't realize that there was this massive thing going on then called the Seven Years' War. Uh, Churchill actually referred to it as the First World War wow. because it was uh, global, extended all the way from the Philippines to India to the New World and all over Europe. And, and uh, I didn't realize that Swedenborg was publishing in London and Amsterdam because they had the highest quality printing at that time. Hmm. London was really the print center of the whole world at that time. 
Uh, and it would have been against the law for Swedenborg to publish these books in Sweden because they went against the Lutheran orthodoxy that was the state religion. Wow. Mm -hmm. So he would travel abroad to publish them. Little issue, though, and he's been publishing in England. Little issue, though, England and Sweden are enemies in this war. (laughs) And he's a member of the Swedish government. Oh, my so goodness. I think it, it may have become a, things, l- yeah. a little hot to stay in England at that point. He 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 gets out of England in, in 1759 wow. and goes back um, to Sweden. And uh, so I think he couldn't have left Sweden to go back to England because there was fighting in the channels. A lot of it was naval warfare that was going on. Hmm. And uh, it, it just was not safe. It was uh, the the bloodiest war that had ever existed on earth up to that point, wow. you know, involving the most different countries and everything. Um, so I think he had to kind of, he was put on ice. Another mm. strange factor that happened during that time was that the war was absolutely devastating for economies and particularly the Swedish economy in something like a five, six, seven year span. I don't have the facts in front of me. But there was 185% inflation. Wow. Meaning uh, what, you know, 10 bucks used to buy you, like your $10 are now worth three, basically. Um, Wow. So the money and printing was very expensive. So the the paper was 90% of the cost. Paper was extremely expensive. Wow, yeah. So he's suddenly trying to work under these terrible conditions, the world's gone to war and his money's become worthless. So so what he does is he just makes the work smaller. So as much as the 1758 works were smaller than Secrets of Heaven, yeah. the 1763s are even smaller huh. still. Huh. The five works that we have in this volume are five of the eight shortest works he ever did. One of them's only 23 pages long. Wow. And yet they're very punchy. It's like he stepped up his game hmm. at the same time. Like, okay, if I have to say less, then I'm, I'll just make it more powerful. That's so it, true. It, you know, it, as a writer, like you have to, it's harder to write short and strong, you know, than, than long. Fascinating. That's right. And so that's basically a, a little nutshell of what I'm interested in about these shorter works of 7063, that why were they shorter why was there a gap? And he also shifted his place of publication. He went from London to Amsterdam. Uh, the tone changes. He becomes a little more aggressive in his attack on the existing Christianity and challenging them, calling them out. So they're very interesting works to me, and I'm very excited about this volume coming out. Wow. Well, I hope we get to hear more about the 1763s with you, and I guess we most likely will since that that's really coming out, you know, this uh this week or when does exactly does it come out? Does it have a date? Yet? I think the bound book date is this week. Wow. Uh, the on sale date is in the middle of I think it's August fifteenth or something. We always use leave a little time. Yep. In case there's a delay in the publishing process and so on. Wow. So they're coming. Thanks so much for going through that that history with us. You're welcome. That's good fun. All right, so where was Swedenborg, and what was he up to this week in history? The world may never know. <laughs> what what week is this? <laughs> 
<laughs> well, okay. So, um, this, not only what week, we are actually on the very day that this episode is airing, um, is July 19th. And on July 19th in 1759, 1759 was the very day that Swedenborg evidenced his clairvoyance in the great Stockholm fire. There's Ooh. even a Wikipedia article about this. Wow. So it's real. And so we want to give people a little bit of a taste of what that was. And interestingly, the main or sort of what people consider the most reliable account of it is by none other than um, a somewhat well-known philosopher, Immanuel Kant. What's wow. up with it's that? It's like the, the No Homers Club, like the two guys named Immanuel. <laughs> you guys, it's from The Simpsons? Is that a pretty, was it a 25-year-old reference or something? Okay. <laughs> oh, man. But <laughs> Sorry, sidetrack. Yes, okay. And Emmanuel, that's, that's, a, that's an interesting guy to be a resource on this because don't they have kind of a complicated professional relationship? Yeah, and I really don't know that much about it, but it's just like, yeah, that they were contemporary and interesting that that just gives you a clue anyway that this fire was, uh, or this episode was, um, you know, interesting enough or news spread about it that you have somebody like Kant knowing the details yeah um okay give, it was give much us, investigated yeah. by a bunch of people wasn't it yeah and so so i'll go uh, i want to go through the details i'll give you the 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 information and then we can chat about it so what it was was so swedenborg arrived in gothenburg now jonathan you were saying like he's coming to gothenburg that's like a coastal or city right or like a port city that's right on the west coast of sweden and and he's coming back from England and heading home to where he lives, where his house is in Stockholm. But he's he's in Gothenburg for a bit. And the distance between Gothenburg and Stockholm is nearly 300 miles. And and for reference, that's like from where I am outside Philadelphia to Boston. You know, it takes about five or six hours to get to Boston from here. So that's how far he is from Stockholm. But it wasn't five or six hours back then. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, right. I can drive there, you know, on the highway for, for six hours, but right. Even, even further, if you're going or takes longer, if you're on horseback or whatever it would be in a wagon, I don't know. Okay. Well, there's, there's actually nothing on earth right now that is that far away. In other words, you could get on a plane and in a day and a half be on any part of the planet, but it was th- three days in a carriage ride at least to get from Gothenburg to Stockholm. Wow. Nice. Okay. So he was invited to the house of this guy named Mr. William Castell. And at this place, he was at this party and there were like 15 people there. And at around 6 p.m., this is what Kant has recorded. Swedenborg went out and returned to the company quite pale and alarmed. He said that a dangerous fire had just broken out in Stockholm near his house and that it was spreading very fast. He was restless and went out often. He said that the house of one of his friends, whom he named, was already in ashes and that his own was in danger. At eight o'clock, after he had been out again, he joyfully exclaimed, thank God the fire is extinguished, the third door from my house. And then Kant writes that the next day, quote, Swedenborg was summoned to the governor who questioned him concerning the disaster. Swedenborg described the fire precisely how it had begun and in what manner it had ceased and how long it had continued. 
And then he writes that on Monday evening, a messenger arrived at Gothenburg who was dispatched by the Board of Trade during the time of the fire. So, you know, this is whatever that would be three days later, like having to make that whole trip. Um, In the letters brought by him, the fire was described precisely in the manner stated by Swedenborg. Dun, dun, dun. And and those people didn't even know how the fire ended because they left for Gothenburg before it finished. Oh, right. And the following day, there was another group that came that said, oh, and here's where it stopped and and confirmed other elements of the story. Do you you want to know what I think is the headline for this story? Yes. Uh, It's that Swedenborg was agitated and upset because (laughs) here's Swedenborg... And he's, he's Swedenborg by now. He's, he knows about heaven and hell. He knows about divine providence. He's clairvoyant enough that he knows this fire is going on. But look at that. He's, he doesn't want his house to burn down, and he's stressed about it. He knows God runs the universe, but he's got this stress. And to me, that's great. Mm-hmm. I love that because realistic expectations. Like here, here I am, and yes. we are talking about Swedenborg stuff all the time, and I've been stressed this morning. So it's just like, you know, you don't, you're not, it's not like you, if you're doing this right, you know, you don't care if there's a fire near your house. No, you still, there's a part of us right. that's always going to care about the fire. Ah, uh, that's a great point. And so, like, uh, Jonathan, what, what, what else do you know about this event? Because I feel like you must know a little bit more than even I was able to sort of pick up from just Kant's own thing. Well, partly what's interesting is that you and I were just talking about that five-year gap, and it's interesting that this was early on in the five-year gap in Swedenborg's publishing. Right. He was heading back from London, the easiest sort of port. I think he must have left his carriage in Gothenburg uh, because Stockholm was a lot more difficult to sail to. You had to go south and then east and then north and then west. and <laughs> You had to wait for wait, water and tide and wind and everything to, to do the job. And... Um, also, this living room that he was in is still preserved, this dining room, to this day because it was perhaps the finest 18th century dining room at the time. It had red silk on the walls and was gorgeous because these were wealthy merchants. Gothenburg was kind of like Wall Street is in the United States or something. It was the financial center, home of the Swedish East India Company, where there's a lot of wealth there. And a lot of the people who were at that dinner, and so Stockholm was sort of like the Washington, D.C. or something. It was a political you know, center. And so a number of the wealthy people at dinner had homes. In, they owned property in oh. Stockholm mm-hmm. and in Gothenburg. So this was not uh, academic to them or a sort of fascinating parlor trick. It was like, oh, my house could be burning or my business you know, my warehouse could be burning down. Hmm. So the other nobles who were at this dinner were, were quite agitated about it. I think that's why the governor was called that same night, on a Saturday night, get the governor. He's got to know about this, you know? Yeah. And Swedenborg gets called on the carpet the next morning to talk about it. And um, the way I read the event is that... Um, I want to talk with you another time about Swedenborg's anonymity and everything. Up to this point, nobody Mm. knew he was writing these books. He didn't put his name on them. Mm. Uh, And sometimes I had thought in the past that this might be when he got discovered, but I don't think so. And just because you're clairvoyant doesn't mean you're writing books of exegetical theology 
in another country. <laughs> right. um, that's the other clairvoyance, guy. Right. Yeah, right. that's right. Yeah, like, hey, Dad, I, I, good, I made it. I'm clairvoyant. Yeah. Well, just because you're clairvoyant doesn't mean you're writing books and blah blah. blah. <laughs> that's right. I think what effect this had, interestingly, was that he had been trying for ten years to engage the public with what he was writing, and had been quite disappointed. You can see from letters that he was quite disappointed. But when he displayed this spiritual power almost by accident, yeah. all of a sudden, oh, now the nobility, now the governor wants to talk to him the next morning. Oh, now you finally hit a topic we care about. Uh. Uh, people were very interested. Here's Immanuel Kant. Oh, I've got to research this. I have to know all about it. There was a, a, a number of reports that were written, including one by Johann Rosane, who later became one of his early followers, wrote a newspaper article about it, lived in Gothenburg, and became a kind of a convert, quote-unquote. And uh, so I think it got Swedenborg's attention that, oh, spiritual experience, people are interested in spiritual experiences, and the nobility is particularly can't get enough of this stuff, and so they don't really care about you know, God or life after death, or whatever. but tell me about your spiritual experience. That's really interesting. That is so, so fascinating. And it's, it's interesting to uh, think about how, um, you know, what you were just saying about that, uh, that there was this gap in publishing between the 1758s and the 1763s, and that this event on July 19th happens right at the beginning of that gap. So you sort of think like, here he's been, he's coming back from England, he's been working hard on publishing these volumes of Secrets of Heaven, um, and it actually ends up being kind of like a providential turning point where it's like he happens to be at this event where, with these, you know, wealthy nobility people who know the governor or whatever, and he's he can't help but, you know, be visibly agitated and and then finds out the response to that, that people are like, wow, this guy's clairvoyant. Like, so... You know what I mean? That's just so interesting. Yeah, there were a number of people who became permanently interested, not only Johann Rosan that I mentioned, but also Count Bunda, Count Tessin, other people at the highest level of the Swedish nobility and in the government at that time who became permanently interested. They didn't know what to think, but they were interested in him, like he was on their radar in a new way. They knew him. They'd known him for years. But this was like, oh, I didn't know you could do that. <laughs> hmm. And sets the precedent for Swedenborg's dynamic between the spiritual experiences, the headline-grabbing stuff, and the boring stuff about God and life after death and the internal sense of the word. <laughs> He's doing He does that for his whole publishing career with the theological works. I mean, Heaven and Hell was this, uh, okay, I'm going to give you Heaven and Hell and what it's like there. And on every single page, there's 30 or 40 footnotes about how to go back to Secrets of Heaven and learn about regeneration and the internal sense of the word. It's just this... He, he was convinced, even though he could have these spiritual experiences all the time, and they were very important to him, it's, it's very much worth noting that he was just desperate to pull us back to eating our vegetables for some reason. <laughs> right. That's right. Right, right. Oh, that's fascinating. Well, this was quite an exciting uh, moment in history for Swedenborg, July 19th, 1759. And How are you going to top that? I mean, that's got to be the most exciting moment ever, but we'll see you next time. Thank you both, Curtis and Jonathan. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. Great fun, Chelsea. All right. I'm Chelsea Odner, and we'll be here with you next week inside Off the Left Eye. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode. Subscribe to Inside Off the Left Eye to get our weekly insider podcast. 
And if audio is your thing, subscribe to Swedenborg and Life to hear our entire weekly lineup of video programs in their audio-only form. If you prefer video, subscribe to the Off the Left Eye YouTube channel and explore all our content and resources at our website, offtheleftye.com. And to become part of the core group of people who sustain what we do here at Off the Left Eye, go to otle.cosvox.com to support our work with a donation. Hey, but you can't spare the cash? It's like showering us in gold and diamonds to rate us on iTunes and leave a review. But you know what? Just having you there listening is a real form of support in itself. So I mean it when I say thank you so much for listening. Thank you.